Sonnet for the sake of sound. This actinic pull guides my path through you while I consider how this light is spent. You melt of safety, guard down, child. What color will do? This dormant naked rainbow pays my rent the days your skin is not enough. Your humor, disquiet, your comedy is fight instinct in me. There are too many numbers, stacked, piled, counted. This measure's lack, I forget, as dead, as craft, as reading. And the noise bumbles in night by, mumbles, talks the voices into. A moment, thick track, and I am annoyed by this version of true. This is the Generation Poetry Podcast. This is episode two. Today on the podcast, we have retired headmistress Jane Stevens. Massey and Julie discuss happiness. Please join us at generationpoetry.com. I'm Jane Stevens. I'm a teacher and I've been in education for 37 years. I've spent 15 years in the maintained sector in London in the primary area and the rest of the time in the independent sector. I have taught girls and boys in selective and non-selective schools and I have been the head teacher of three independent prep schools. I am also a governor of two schools, uh, one in Wiltshire and one in London, and I have been the advisor to a multi-academy trust in the maintained sector uh, as well, helping um, the staff there create uh, something that they could then offer to parents in the city London. I'm also a mother and a grandma. And you're building a library with a tower. I am. <laughs> and the carpets went down the other day and it's very, very exciting. <laughs> My mouth is agape here about the tower. I oh, it's, it's fabulous. Me, uh... it's, it's even got a finial that points skyward. Let me tell you, it's uh, classy. <laughs> I think the most important thing is shining a light on students and young people of that age because the the idea that... I have come up against for the past 40 years is that children, students, young people can learn so much from adults, but it doesn't work the other way around. And that is absolutely wrong. We learn, I have learned so much from the students that have been in my care over these years. And, uh, and that's one, now I'm retired, that's the thing I miss. I miss the learning bit for me, which is purely selfish. Yes, I, I acknowledge that. But I'm hoping that as I was learning from my students, they were also learning from me. And, and it, it's that that really got me excited when we first talked about it, because it works both ways. One of the things that uh, this project will give them is, is time. And by giving them time and encouraging them, 
to air their opinions and, and discuss whatever is on their mind. Um, that, that is something that is intangible, but is so precious because that goes to the core of who they are and it makes them feel valued. And so often our young people do not feel valued because nobody's bothered about them. But the fact that you're seeking them out and seeking their opinions, I think is fantastic. Yeah, so I put all the responsibility onto our shoulders, actually. You should bear some of this. I completely agree with you. Yeah, and, and actually, you're talking about speaking to teenagers. That's exactly the same kind of answer a teacher of a reception class, four, five, six years old children get, because they're really quite savvy, our four-year-olds now. And, and they, they, yes, they look to, to us to assist them and help them and educate, in inverted commas. But actually, they want, they want to do it. But they want us to realise that we also have a responsibility towards the world and to them. And I know this for a fact, having spoken at length last week when I was on holiday with my four-year-old granddaughter, who told me that actually it was my fault that there was so much litter around. Absolutely need to pay attention to Otherwise, we are going to lose all this energy and goodwill and enthusiasm, and the job will become even harder for our young people. So we have to harness it uh, in a way that makes them feel valued and in a way that gives them the wherewithal to do what they know needs to be done. And if, if we don't do that, then we're, we're sunk, I think. Um, certainly my experience of young people is that, um, yes, learning is fine and, and that's great, and you can give that as part of your answer, but um, they would like something that's a little bit more tangible and something that they can, can see, which I think is, is, is a bit uh, paradoxical because ad adults are constant, constantly, especially teachers, constantly wishing to measure things. So they compare and contrast and all the rest of it. And actually um, young people, certainly school-age people, are not that keen on being measured because they feel it's going to enable them. However, I think they do want to know what the end product is going to be so that then they can then give their opinion as to whether we've got it right or not. Because I think certainly the young people in my experience are always looking to adults to make sure that we've got it right and then they can then follow suit, you know, if, if they're sufficiently uh, inspired so to do. But they're, they're looking to us to see if we can get it right first. Would you agree? I think it's one of the most difficult conversation topics with, with young people because actually for many of them, not all of them, but for many of them, their world is black and white. And for, for adults, you know, there, there are more nuanced shades of black and white and, and that they, they want it to be, that the young people want their world to be slightly more obvious uh, than it is. Um, I know what we shouldn't do and what we absolutely shouldn't do and made this mistake a few times in my career, is suggests that, that everything will be revealed when they get older and they understand more. That is absolutely not the way to go. But if we can get that concept across to them without insulting them, then I, I, I suspect it's a good thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Patience. Yeah, it's not always available. <laughs> Certainly, you know, within my experience of primary age children, they are much more willing to accept things that aren't strictly normal in inverted commas they're much more willing to to accept difference than adults are and uh, and as a result of that as they grow up they will continue to be much more willing to accept difference um, which has got to be a great well you know it, it it all starts with um a a picture or a favorite storybook and it's really um starting from something that they know or something that they can see or something that is familiar to them 
and then turning it around and changing it ever so slightly so that you can then focus in on them being able to understand what a philosophical question is. Now, I, I can't tell you how many teachers I have observed over my career um, who will read a fantastic story or show a fantastic picture for discussion to any age children and will then ask the question, okay, so what did you think of that? And then the answer is great or not great. That is not the way to, to encourage children to uh, think philosophically. You, you have to present to them slightly different variations of what they can see so that it can help their minds shift from the path that the story or the picture is taking them down. And it allows them then to explore their own feelings, which then helps the philosophical discussion. So um, ne never, ever, ever ask a question that has only one answer. Always ask a question that has got at least 10 answers and hope in the crowd of kids that you've got in front of you, you'll have more than 10, which means you've got 10 different truths. And then you can then explain to the children that each person has a slightly different answer, a slightly different truth. But within this group, within this discussion, we acknowledge the right of every single person to believe in and adopt and create a slightly different truth from every other person. And that, I believe, is the way to get even two and three-year-olds to start philosophical discussion, which means by the time they get to the grand old age of 11, they are willing to listen to everybody's opinions because that's what they've been encouraged to do. And I, I think it's a really, really important thing, really important. I can't stress that enough. I think what, <clears throat> what I've discovered, uh, especially with um, younger children, so you know, up to about the age of eight or nine, is that the level, the level of empathy that they can display for one or, or, or more children is, is really high. And again, that's got to be a good thing, especially when you consider that there are so many children who are much more willing now to say to adults or teachers or parents or whatever, um, you know, that they feel anxious about something. So another child who has been brought up with this sort of philosophical education will then realize that actually their truth is that they can wade through the world and everything's rosy, but actually that the little chap or chapess who's sitting next to them doesn't have that experience and so therefore they can turn things around and they might not be able to understand fully but they will accept that the experience of their friend is genuine and real and should not be laughed at should not be mocked but should be treated as valuable and and again that bodes well for the future uh, i think and i think you know an increasing number of primary schools are beginning to realize that actually Yes, they've got a responsibility to educate the children to make them numerate and literate and all the rest of it. However, what's going to be much more important is, is the fact that they can understand each other and walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. I think that's much more important. Actually, they, they really can do anything, provided they've got the, the, the solid foundation and you know people around them who are willing them on and loving them and caring for them. Um, to progress and the, the sadness is that many of our young people don't have that and, and there is a big gaping hole uh, which means they don't progress and that, that's our responsibility as adults to, to sort that out and we're not terribly good at it I, think. I mean just within my career uh, when I first started in I don't know if it was 1980 it was 81 something like that 
and uh, I had a class of six-year-olds and I had 38 six-year-olds um, and and just me with, with no help. Now, that would never happen in any school at all in the United Kingdom now. The, the ratio is much, much smaller and, um, you know, the, the, the classes tend to be much, much smaller. And the reason is that we now, as educators, we understand better that time and patience is so much more important than getting, than coverage of the curriculum. Because if you can give a child time to make sure that they understand and they've got the foundations and so on, actually they can do anything. And it goes back to, to mindset. So, Educators see education and their role completely differently now from when I started teaching. And the idea in the 80s was that I had a book of stuff that I had to make sure that the children learned in between September and July. And if I didn't, then I probably wasn't going to uh, progress my career, which is completely <laughs> the wrong way to do things. And I have to say, being a rebel at heart, I, I, I didn't do that. So um, the very first role that I, I took over, I realized that it, it wasn't the place for me. So I jumped ship and went somewhere else that was going to allow me to, to grow as a teacher. And I'm delighted that I did that. Certainly the way teachers are being taught in British universities when they're being trained, um, they are being trained in a much more hands-on approach. And actually, they are, I know Piaget now was always important, but um, now in teacher training colleges, he, his work and his ideas are much more center, uh, center stage. And actually, there was a wild 20 years, I guess, from six, in the 60s and 70s, when teacher training establishments moved away from that. But now I think they're, they're coming back to it because... Uh, guy talks sense <laughs> and actually if you if you listen to him and 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 really understand what he discovered from his own children and his grandchildren children are the same the world over and they learn in very similar ways and so perhaps that's what we are now going back to we've experimented it didn't work and when we're going back to what we know and what is tried and and test it. But that doesn't mean to say that we're, we're going back to the 50s. Absolutely not. We're, we, we're putting a modern spin on it and given much more time and, and teachers are encouraged and expected now to be much, much more patient. And if you've got 10 kids in a group and you, you present a topic in three different ways, you'll, you'll probably, you know, in a few days time, you'll probably realize that actually, you know, six of the children have got it. And if the, the four haven't, it's it's not their fault. It's actually the fault of the teacher. And I think that that is a major game changer because it then, um, you know, the teacher is, is solely responsible. It's not the child's fault. It's the, it's the teacher's fault and the different strategies that they have or haven't adopted. So I, I suspect that is, that's the modern twist on, on Piaget's theory. Does that make sense? I think the acquisition of knowledge is definitely a good thing. Mm -hmm. We know more about the differences uh, in ch children who present themselves to be educated. Um, I hate labels. I absolutely loathe labels. And um, the, the, the education zeitgeist at the moment is encouraging schools to go down the path of labeling. So if you, you know, if, if the child is slightly quirky, slightly dyslexic, whatever it may be, 
uh, you then label them, which means you can then deal with them, which also means you will then get funding for them, and therefore the parents and the child will be happy. But actually the reality is quite different. It's so much more important to understand where that child is coming from and their needs, and then to go and find out and discover whether you can satisfy those needs. That's, that's much more important than sticking a label on the child, because uh, the label could be wrong. Tend to be wrong, actually, in my experience. I remember my head teacher at secondary school telling me as I went up to get my A-level certificates at the end, and, and she said, Jane, you will never amount to anything. I'm absolutely staggered that you have come on this journey and you have reached this, this stage. I know. And I looked at her and I could have said something awful, but I bit my lip and didn't. And when I became a teacher, I thought, well, should I go back and show her that I'm a teacher? No, I won't do that. But when I became a head teacher, uh, I, I went back and, and told her and discussed with her. And she actually said to me, she actually said, well, I only said that because I knew it would spur you on to great things. And I thought, you know, <laughs> you're wrong again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're wrong again, but never mind. <laughs> Do you think that they are somewhat constrained by the adult expectations around them? So their, their parent expectations. We've invested time and money and love in you. We would like you to end up looking like this model of a child. And so they're perhaps, not all, but perhaps a little bit anxious about showing their, their real self because it might not gel nicely with what other people expect of them. But I think they're quite smart, though. Yeah. I think they're really savvy. And um, I think they they know which aspects they're going to reveal and which aspects they, they want to keep hidden and perhaps peel away and show you later. And I, I, I don't think we should underestimate them. I'd like to say that it had changed. <laughs> um, sadly, I don't think it has. I think, I think it's much more subtle now. Um, certainly when I first started uh, teaching, whenever. Um, I remember going for my very first uh, interview and uh, walking through into the secretary's office at the primary school and she, she wouldn't look up so I had I coughed a little bit. She did finally look up and, uh, and she said, I'm so sorry, I can't deal with you now because we're, uh, we're interviewing and I'm expecting um, somebody to come for an interview. So I said, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely couldn't believe it I, I i laugh when i say it because it, it, it well it was hilarious and she she said oh i had no idea you were colored when i spoke to you on the phone you sounded very posh <laughs> so i just smiled anyway i did get the job but hey you know that was fun experience and um and then further along uh, another experience with my second headship, and uh, I got lost in one part of the school and couldn't find my way out and, and uh, found a piano teacher. Well, she found me, and I was just about to say to her, can you please direct me to such and such a place, because I got lost. And she grabbed hold of my hand, and she said, oh, my dear, I'm so glad I found you. And she dragged me into one of the uh, piano practice rooms and she said, could you please give this piano an extra special clean? Because it really hasn't had any attention for a very long time to her. And I said, uh, I think I ought to introduce myself. 
my name is Jane Stevens and I'm your new headmistress. Anyway, she scuttled off in embarrassment. So, you know, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and there was about 20 years in between those two experiences. <clears throat> but, but one should smile about them yeah, because they are laughable. Uh, but I, I think as far as the, as the students' experience goes, certainly in the schools that I've been involved with, independent or maintained, it, it actually doesn't make a difference. Unless there is somebody who champions the progress and the, uh, you know, the, the pathways that are possible for black, Asian, whatever children, um, those children feel less valued. And I, I believe, and I've tried hard to make sure that wherever I go, I have championed the possible pathways for those children because they then can see what is possible. They may not choose that path, and that's absolutely fine, and it may not suit them, and that is also absolutely fine. But if you don't show them what's possible, they may not have an understanding, or their circumstances may not encourage them to think in a slightly different way. And, and I've, I've felt that really keenly, um, and I've tried really hard to make sure that I champion their cause. Um, within a meritocracy, of course, but nevertheless, champion their cause. Going back to that idea, I think I think it's really important. I think you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. Hit the nail on the head there. Um, and I know through my career, if I were to talk to some of the kids that I've been involved with in the, in, you know, the past five years and, and look back at the children that I was involved with you know, 20, 30 years ago, I would say that the, the children more, more recently... Uh, have a much more solid foundation because they know what they're about and it is because of the language. Mm. Before, it was very difficult for them and they would never mention it. Their parents certainly wouldn't mention it. But but now, it's we're much more open and we're honest and, and we can deal with things better, which means we get over things faster, which means we you can kick obstacles into touch. Mm. I think that's much better. How interesting. I think I would start with uh, a nursery um, because I think children, the, the social aspect uh, that a nursery school offers is critical, uh, in, in my opinion. Not the academic aspects that a nursery school offers, but the social aspect that they offer is critical. So that's what I would start with because children need to learn from each other probably more than they need to learn from teachers. Five, what they need to, to understand better is themselves and their own creativity. And I think if we funnel that into reading and writing, we are just uh, stopping their creativity in its tracks. So I think to nurture their, their skill set in a host of different ways, I think is much better than insisting on them being able to, to learn to read. And I, I in, in the back of my head, I can hear all the parents that I've ever spoken to saying, oh my God, that, how dreadful that would be. But actually, it wouldn't be dreadful because the children would have learned how to test themselves and how to react to different situations much better without being forced to learn in a prescribed way. And I think that stores up 
all sorts of psychological issues for the future if we do it too early. That's that's my feeling. So that would be a slightly radical change in, in the UK if, if that were to happen. Um, philosophy would still feature. They would. Uh, the, uh, I think we the teaching staff would be much more relaxed. Still have high expectations of the children, and probably even higher expectations of their parents. That's another conversation, but. I don't think it would be quite so formal. It would be much more relaxed and much more doing mm. rather than testing to see if the children have done, which is what education seems to me to be about. And I disagree with that. Um, just because you, you know, keep weighing a chicken to see if it's put on weight doesn't mean it's going to be put on weight. You've got to feed it, nurture it, and look after it, all of that, and then you can test it. You know, when, when you think you, you, you've made some progress, but doing it every turn is just a nonsense. Keeps politicians happy, but it doesn't actually benefit children. So that, that's where I would go. And I, I, it would, there'd be small groups. I think a lot of the learning, I, I think, would actually, as the children got older, would happen at home. And then they would come to school and discussions about the learning that has taken place would then improve the learning and then the teacher would be able to assess much less inform much more informally um, the, the, the actual proper deep um, concrete learning that, that the students had, had made and uh, many schools are now beginning to do this and they call it blended learning and so a topic is set a lot of the work and the investigation happens at home and then when the children students come to school they learn from each other presentations and so on and I, and I, I think that is a much more relaxed way of, of going about it it's an expensive way of going about it which is why many schools don't do it right now but I, I think it will catch on and I've seen massive massively favorable results in, in, in a few schools that I'm involved with currently so it's 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 not sensible it doesn't work and uh, it's it's a very Victorian UK model uh, of the way children learn and um, I think we need to change that <laughs> absolutely and it, it, yeah. it's not a waste of time you know but it, it can sometimes be the suggestion can sometimes be made that it is because uh, in the UK we need our our students to to knuckle down and, and focus and it's not fair I think the the first conversation uh, we had a few months ago, the generation bit of it, I think, yeah, that's great. Young people love young people, love very young people. I, I, I can understand that. Um, the the their lives and their opinions and, and their wants and needs and, and hopes and dreams and so on. Um, the the poetry side of it, I then had to really think to work out before we started to talk about it, to, to work out uh, if I had an opinion about it, and if I did have an opinion about it, what it was. <laughs> you see what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and I have to say, um, I didn't really come up with anything, and then, so sort of ditched it for a while, and then came back to think about it. And in, to me, initially, it meant the difference between the ways of thinking adults and I put myself there as, as an adult teacher the way the different ways of 
of, of thinking that I had experienced in comparison to the ways of thinking that young people um, are, are now experiencing. So the, the gap in, in between the young and me, the, the old, and how that gap would make it difficult for me to do my job in order to educate the young. So that, that's where I thought it was going to reside. And then the very first time we started talking about it, and you wanted to know about my thoughts as to uh, education and um, my experiences with children 30 years ago and my experiences now, that made me realize that actually my initial thoughts were completely mad. And <laughs> that's not what you were interested in, in at all, but aspects of it, uh, I thought, uh, could probably be relevant. So if you're going to, if, if I were going to define it. I think I would go back to my initial definition, but to improve that initial definition by populating it with the, the thoughts and feelings uh, of the young. Um, so I hope you're going to talk to more teachers because they absolutely need to have this conversation because they are at the forefront and, and it is within their gift to make it a reality. More than parents. I think teachers influence the future of our young people much more than parents do. They're, they're critical. You need to take this out to all the schools in the land. Yeah, I don't, I don't, well, I, used to, I have to say, I was listening to um, Don McLean, uh, American Pie, just the other day when I was driving somewhere, and the, <laughs> the, which I love. And the, there was a, a riff there, We Sang Dirges in the Dark, and that made me absolutely howl with laughter because I think that's what I, I was learning the guitar, uh, acoustic guitar in my teenage years and I used to sit I went to boarding school and I used to sit with a, a, a crowd of girls and we would sing dirges in the dark in the corridors and it was all terribly meaningful, actually it wasn't but it made me realise that uh, no matter you know what I was experiencing what I needed to do was assist others and I, I, I am convinced actually that that's what made me become a teacher so uh, perhaps I have Don McLean to thank. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've just built my turret. Yeah. With my books <laughs> and my my creativity. I I write. Yeah, for me, not for anybody else. But I I write, and uh, and I love doing it. And I guess that's a that's a return. And looking back on my life, I can now put significant experiences and significant time into a slightly different context because I'm that much older and much more experienced and perhaps a little bit wiser. So I can re-understand the things that I didn't understand. And it supports your future then, doesn't it? Rather yeah. than creates your future. It supports you. So and that's how I see it. And I suppose I'm doing it now because becoming a granny was probably one of the most profound experiences in my entire life and being retired and therefore having more time to do what I love doing. And uh, so all of that, the, the timing is, is crucial for me now. I couldn't do it before, but I can. And I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Hello? Oh, oh. Are you out there? Oh, oh. Are you listening? Oh. This is 
generation poetry. Hello. Welcome to the Generation Poetry Podcast. My name is Julie Jensen Bennett. And my name is Massey Tedeschi. And every week we we talk about a different uh, kind of aspect of what we've learned in Generation Poetry through the research that we've done and the uh, the journey that we've been on to understand this new language emerging. And this week we wanted to talk about happiness, which that's a pretty big word. And when you when you mentioned it to me last year, I was like, okay. And you were like, I really need to talk about happiness this week. Yeah. Okay, so what do you mean by happiness? Okay. Uh, first of all, for me, uh, happiness means slavery. So there is, I think, is one of the most missold concept ever. In fact, I would say happiness has taken away our ability to be happy. That's I. That's my my personal belief. I think we have been we are obsessed by what Freud called the pleasure principle. So we want to chase at every corner somehow uh, the possibility to keep this feeling consistent. So I measure myself. I measure my relationship. I measure my sense of self worth based on how happy I am. Now, if that's not slavery, I don't know what it is. To the point that sometimes people say, well, you know, is um, is uh, the judgment of others, you know, is the judgment of other people that sometimes make us feel that our value somehow is lesser. I think is actually the measuring is against happiness and what you see or you perceive to see in other people. And that is where social media has made the concept of happiness even more uh, uh, honorous for people we and going back to regenerational poetry when we speak to young youngster it's very clear that this relationship with what they perceive to be happiness is changing so i think one of the aspects that you know that's you see millennials you know you have seen and it's probably no surprise to no one but uh you see these uh, people say well you know i go on social media i see that people are having fun i saw instagram people with you know bunch of flowers and boyfriend and this and that and it make me feel bad that's i think is an established fact you know that's i think is happening but I think with the new generation, that because there is this ability to decode and this ability to almost like make sense of things semiotically, they can unpick it. So they can, for example, unpick a filter and say, actually, this is not real. You know, this is just for show because, you know, the filter has been used in a certain way. So they literally look at mediums of how happiness is represented as a way to undo it. Which is really, if you think, it's really amazing because they take ownership back on what happiness means and they start debating, I think, is happiness a helpful concept to live your life or is happiness a slavery, you know, as a way to be slave to your own, you know, to your own ambition, to your own desire. And I think this decoding for me is one of the things that I link the most to generation poetry because it's linguistic. Right, you know, so there is an immediate decoding, not just of the picture, but how the picture has been shot. What is the angle? And I remember um, speaking to this 14-year-old girl and saying, and she, I asked her to bring picture. And she showed me all these pictures. She said, oh, these pictures are for Instagram. And I said, you know, in what way? She said, oh, you know, they are done within the code, actually, the way she used. And then she showed me all these pictures for herself that she will never publish. Very interesting, all the pictures were on the back, so they show her back, looking at the world, and she explained to me, these pictures are me in the experience. These other pictures are me observing and showing an experience. 
And I thought, well, that's magic because for me, the meaning of real happiness is the experience, is the process, right? The process has texture. A picture has no texture. A picture is an object, is looking at happiness as an object. The experience is being in it, you know, is actually being part of the experience of being happy. You're not aware of it. So to me, that sort of linguistically is very interesting about generation poetry. The other thing that I notice, so is this undoing of happiness, is the doing of value. So recognizing that there's so many more value than happiness that can lead your life. Honesty, friendship, truthfulness, responsibility toward others. And again, if you think about that, those are somehow very old-fashioned value. We had all these in uh, the generation of uh, Sartre and the generation of uh, existentialism. And then somehow they got kind of, uh, kind of put as a niche, you know, the, the desperate French people that, you know, are quite against happiness. But I find this kind of wave coming back. And actually when I ask people about their value, and in the research we do, we give them kind of option of value, none has chosen happiness. One of the, the, the value that has been chosen more consistent in research is honesty. That reminds me, it's not exactly the same word, but when we talk about the word pleasure mm -hmm. um, and happiness, they're, they're mm. closely related. And I remember one of the conversations we had with one of the older Generation Poetry participants when we were asking about relationships and boyfriend, girlfriend, sex. And, and she described the value of sex in every word except pleasure. Mm, absolutely true. And we were sitting there going, but isn't it just feel good? Isn't it just pleasurable? Don't you just like it? And, and we were kind of really confused at that moment, but in this context. But I think you see, that is, uh, I think what you say is really interesting because I think in one level, um, I think the meta level that this generation use to make sense of that experience in a way allows them to be freer. As I said, for example, from the concept of freedom and get more aligned with exploring other concepts, other emotion. But the same meta level takes also this generation a bit on the side of life, a little bit on the edge of life. If you look at something, if you are aware of something, being immersed in, in it becomes a, a little bit of an ambivalent situation, an ambivalent scenario. So I think when it gets to pleasure and when you kind of, when they look at pleasure from a more meta level, from a little bit of sense of detachment, they see a lot of problem in it, I think. So it's not literally for me the inability to feel pleasure, it's actually the um, I think they are questioning pleasure. That's what I would say. They are, uh, they are debating what pleasure is and in a way how pleasure is in their best interest. So, for example, you mentioned sexuality. Sexuality, yeah, it's surprising for somebody my age, you know, going through adolescent in very different terms and seeing somebody that says, well, you know, it's all about the connection and my best friend is my boyfriend. No fairy tale, no... I, I actually mentioned to somebody, oh, do you feel butterfly? And she laughed at me. You know, like, like you are stuck in a world that is, uh, you know, Cinderella. And it's a kind of such an old, old-fashioned world. Um, but I think, again, for me, when it comes to pleasure and sexuality, they are debating what that means. For example, for their gender. So sexuality is not just an act of lust or an act of love. It's also an act of self-affirmation in what you believe in. That's again, for me, is in the same thread of being able to look at their own reality, 
which is again the the thought of they are meta level they are so fucking meta as they say you know it it is true and i suppose for me what i want to say is this idea of ambivalence so they are assessing and what does the generation if it's not assessing the world around themselves they do it differently so i don't think they do it as um, as um, maybe the 70s you know with the kind of you know fist up and they do it by by thinking Actually, they're not doing it necessarily by doing, but they are thinking collectively and they are sharing this thinking through memes, through poetry, to quotes. That's create a change in the paradigm, which eventually will create a change in society. I don't think we see it yet. I think it's still kind of undercurrent. It's almost like they represent our unconscious mind. Okay, so what we do see at the moment, though, which is probably about four additional episodes of discussion, is we do see this really sharp rise in mental illness, in suicide, in self-harm. Um, a lot of things that, that lead people to think that this is a very sick it's generation. A, it's, again, happiness. It's, again, happiness. Think of depression thinks of uh, anxiety, think of uh, grief, think of, um, you know, social anxiety. And it's not to claim that these things don't exist. But I think, again, they exist very often on the measure of what we believe a normal person should be feeling like, which is tendentially it should feel either adjusted, Freud says Mr. Reality, or somehow in a situation of happiness and exchange of happiness with the world, the pleasure principle. I think for me, uh, what we have missed and what we have lost with this medicalization is the ability, the, the um, inability to define the difference between fear and anxiety, between uh, despair and depression, between uh, grief and major depression. So I think for me, again, the medicalization, in my opinion, is a radicalization of the same principle of we need to live happy and we need to be well adjusted. Those emotions are part of the repertoire of humankind. You know, we, we experience them. Some of these emotions, or I would say some of these dark emotions, have in itself the seed of healing. I, I often say it's like a, a, a fruit or a piece of food where you have the enzyme inside to make it digestible. If we don't get in touch with this emotion, our understanding of life and being able to really live life is diminished. That's my thought. When I look from the perspective of generation poetry, I can also see how much they struggle to get in touch. That's yes. So they do, they're undoing happiness in their mind, but when it comes to being in it, so being in the emotion, they still carry on the legacy of a culture that for the last maybe 50 years has been over and over and overly medicalized in everywhere as a pathology. And I think that is something that is, so to me, they're struggling with the idea of mental health rather than necessarily being sick. I think that's a, that's a very good distinction. And I think there's also that word fear that you brought up, I think is a really interesting one because I know at my advanced age, I've only maybe in the past few years begun to understand the difference between fear and anxiety. Hmm. And I think it it came into sharp focus for me, I think after the both the Brexit election and the, the Trump election, when all of a sudden I understood that what I was feeling 
was fear and fear is a rational response to a serious threat anxiety is in me fear is actually out there in the world and I'm reacting to it I'm feeling about it because I need to be aware of it and I need to do something about it and I think when you when we look at the situation that the generation sees around them in the world fear is an absolutely rational reasonable and self-preservation response but you can see why from the point of view of the establishment that is not willing to listen is actually much easier and that has happened throughout all history to isolate them as pathological mm -hmm. rather than acknowledging absolutely as you say the rational helpful response to a obvious threat that is uh, you know <laughs> is under our very eyes actually is to pathologize that and say actually and once you've done that you have discredited it there's no there's no credit a crazy person has no credit so it's a maneuver that is in fact beyond sinister and this is not the first time it happens, you know, that's also, I think, needs to be pointed out, you know, yes, it's very much in the eyes of, um, you know, the moment to see how, and I use the word again, establishment is not listening at all, you know, we have this figure that keep going with their own views with absolutely no acknowledgement of other point of view or actually of threat in the world, so it's not, but it's also not new, so and I think when we talk about generational poetry, we are very hopeful, and in many ways we are very um, we are very um, positive and we are very uh, encouraging. However, we also have to understand that generational poetry happens in a space and at a time. So it's not yes, there is a, a, a drive for change, but the drive for change always goes through ambivalence. You know, and ambivalence is the quintessential way to discover new things. So they're still the product and they're still within a set of uh, belief, within a set of systems. And I think for me, that's where our school comes into place, because I don't think it's about teaching them or teaching all the generation about them. I think it's having, as cheesy as it sounds, having a forum for exchange. I think this conversation, the one we are having now, need to happen. And they need to happen in the open. When I have this conversation with uh, with uh, our respondent, and I have, you know, exactly like this, they are extremely informed conversation in a way, I can tell that they find in me, as a representative of an older generation, they're very suspicious, but then they find uh, a, a bit of a platform to have this kind of uh, conversation that are not suitable for their age. You know, if you think about uh, how the older generation sometimes look at even Generation Alpha, the very young one, and discredit them, like, why they don't just kids? Why they don't just play? And again, that is, uh, I think we are all very frightened. You know, we are all very frightened. And I would say we are all very frightened of this generation. We really struggle to understand them. You know, and again, when you don't understand something, you can criminalize them, pathologize them, which happens, or you can actually discount them and say you don't count. So I know we started from happiness and we ended up in a world problem, but I think the two are actually extremely connected because I literally still believe that all this situation, it's somehow still driven by this monolithic desire for one thing. And when I desire one thing, being it happiness or something else, I lose sense of my environment entirely. Uh, and I, I, I think that, that the word environment there is really useful because I think the other tendency when we talk about 
this generation is to orient every explanation of them around social media and technology to say they are the reason that they are because they're the first generation to have smartphones for you know um, and social media presence for their entire conscious lives and that therefore everything that's good about them is down to social media everything that's bad about them is down to social media they use it too much they use it too little they're fluent they're not you know and it and the conversation just keeps coming back and back and back to this very specific one thing without looking at what's the entire environment that they've grown it's very, up in. It's very facile. You know, to blame it on technologies, I think, again, is one of the features that has been throughout. You know, I'm sure that at the time where a bike was invented, there was the same sense of, well, you know, the world is going to change and it's going to end. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the rhetoric of the old good time and the rhetoric of, you know, things were better at my time. That's, I think, is something that has happened throughout. I think blaming on technology for me is the, um, not blaming, but as you say, explaining things through the lens of technology it's uh, um, literally like trying to explain life through the medium of food. It is, yes, it is one facet, but it doesn't keep into account context in any way. It takes everything as a phenomenon, but it doesn't necessarily unpick why such a phenomenon is happening. So why the, the, the point is, you, you have these, uh, you know, the challenges on social media and, you know, the problem, the different challenges from Samara challenge to another challenge creates, you know, in people's life for the selfie and the risk the selfie takes. You can blame it on that. You can blame it on the phone. You can blame it on social media. And as a semiotician, I'd say it is very true that with the new instrument, something changed in what I decide to activate in myself. You know, in semiotic, we say a man plus a gun is a new man, is not a man plus a gun. So it changed somehow our attitude toward life. But I would be more interested in understanding the reason why we feel that being extreme is so important. And being extreme, and again, I don't want to sort of peruse my cause of happiness, but being extreme gets you some form of kudos of happiness, you know, some form of the like, you know, it's a very facile thing, but you know, the thumb up and the like and the viewing, again, is the same principle. So this idea of extreme and this idea of, uh, let's say, social media going a bit of hand, I think has the same principle. It's literally just a desire to accomplish a sense of well-being, even going through the worst possible direction of, you know, putting yourself in danger or put your life or the life of others in danger. Does it make any sense? Yes. Okay, good. So we're, we're going to have... I should time the making your coffee yeah. so that it is... <laughs> or, or unplug it. <laughs> Either or. I can't unplug my robot oh, coffee can. machine. It would be angry with yeah. me. Um, is, I think he has an opinion on happiness. It, it, it does. This is, this is definitely... Um, perhaps even more than Alexa, Yeah. Um, this machine to me has a personality... But, uh, totally. That, um, but it deserves it. The coffee is delicious. <laughs> Cappuccino is the best in town. You know, but it's so. very demanding. It's like, it it's like the demanding. diva yeah. of, of kitchen robots. <laughs> it's a meal, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think we're going to have to wrap up for today. I think we've touched on a number of topics that I suspect we're going to come back to again and again yeah. and again because they're, they're very central. Uh, but I guess kind of ending where we started... Uh, you know, what makes you happy? 
you know, theory is one thing, uh, uh, so, and I can talk about. Um, experience is another, uh, and I find it a bit harder. Um, I'd say for me what makes me happy is uh, the happiest I am is uh, when I understand. For me, understanding is, um, is kind of key to my well-being, but I would not necessarily define it happiness as much as living well. For me, there is this element of living well that knowledge and understanding has. But, you know, the, the slavery of, oh, I feel happy today because, you know, it doesn't, uh, yeah, no, doesn't I, get I, me. I find myself all the time, I, I catch myself, I'll, I'll say in conversation, uh, happy, and then I go, oh, but I don't believe in happiness, I believe in joy. <laughs> I'm also continental, so we are programmed not to like happiness. I'm know? American, so I'm, yeah. I'm supposed to believe <laughs> in happiness, this. but I don't. <laughs> okay. Oh, I kind of feel like I'm standing up at the end of church making announcements before the coffee hour, but here we go. Okay. The Generation Poetry Project has two events coming up in September and October. The first is our Introducing Generation Poetry online seminar, or GenPo 101, as I like to call it. This is free. It's 50 minutes. It covers the basics of what we're talking about when we talk about Generation Poetry, uh, particularly why we're stuck with the word poetry, no matter how confusing, unfamiliar, unsubstantial this word sounds. So our first uh, version of this seminar is on September 17th. You can register via a link on our website. So just go to www.generationpoetry.com and click on the happenings link. Also on October 8th, we are moderating a discussion on what generation poetry will allow brands to do and be. Kind of looking at how the whole entire contract of consumer culture is up for grabs. We're going to be at the Arboretum in central London, which is a brand new members club. We're starting at 6.30 p.m. The panel, I think this is going to be really electric. It's definitely not the voices you're used to hearing in this discussion. Uh, and again, you can use the happenings link on our website to get your ticket. It's quite a small event, keeping it intimate. So I would get in there now and grab one if you want to come. Finally, the Generation Poetry Project, well, we're self-funded. Uh, so to keep doing this research, to keep putting on events and courses, to keep giving the Voices of Generation Poetry a platform, we're going to need sponsors. Uh, if you're part of a business that's trying to figure out how to speak effectively with young people, we offer a number of different ways that you can engage with us to help you out. This includes um, actually the opportunity to come out with us on field research as, as part of the project. It's kind of an immersive academy of generation poetry. Essentially, we can talk about this stuff all day long and try and explain it to you, but once you see it with your own eyes and start to make sense of things differently... You can't unsee it. It's definitely an amazing experience. You can also help help us in all the usual ways. So like, share, subscribe to this podcast. Please sign up to our newsletter every week. It gives you really actually quite useful things on what's going on in the world. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, join us in the 
Poetics of Positive Performance in the Epic of the Panopticon. 